Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage, where I head to Stanley Military Cemetery, just further along the main road from Stanley Market. Here, there are graves that date back to the 19th century. Some, poignantly, are smaller. They are children's graves, but the majority of the graves are white Portland stone, immaculately maintained by the Commonwealth War Graves Commission. These are the military graves of those who were killed during the Battle of Hong Kong in December 1941 and the subsequent Japanese military occupation of Hong Kong until August 1945. Stanley Military Cemetery is possibly unique in that in among the graves there are five of men who were posthumously awarded the George Cross Medal for Bravery. All five were executed in 1943, and all five worked in the resistance in the British Army Aid Group. Military history enthusiast Martin Hayes, who gives battlefield tours in Hong Kong, joins me to tell me about these five men. I asked him firstly how he feels when he stands in a place like Stanley Military Cemetery. It can be very moving. I mean, I may have been doing this for goodness knows how many years, but I never fail to be moved by, by it all and especially if it's somebody who perhaps um, I may not know much about beforehand. And that certainly has happened. Somebody has said, oh, we're looking into my grandfather, my father, whatever. And, you know, I then do a little bit of background research and they help me as well with what they have. And it, it tends to sort of give you more than, than just, just a headstone. Although one could never have known these people, the very fact that it, they're not just a name on a headstone, they're actually, or were, a living person who took part in this part of Hong Kong's history. I think when we start researching them and also it um, perhaps not the word humanizes them but it does give them the sort of backstory that they were fathers, sons, brothers and uh, the jobs that they did and uh, often if they were also volunteers they had very different lives and then were suddenly called to service. Absolutely it was something which we couldn't possibly begin to imagine now with the passage of time but could I just go back to one interesting point you make and you talk about yes you know they are to us really just names. I always remember uh, watching a video uh, documentary which came out quite a large number of years ago now involving two veterans of the battle, two Canadians. One was a chap called Bob Manchester and the other was a chap called Bob Clayton and those two gentlemen were taken to Japan, Hokkanawa War Cemetery and Clayton at one point while they're walking through the cemetery looking at the headstones very much like we are today here turns to his mate Manchester and he says do you know Bobby said to everybody else they're just names on a headstone but these were our men our friends our partners our muckers you know whatever term you want to use to us they're not just headstones and they're not just names on a headstone they are actually people that we knew and we served with and we fought with and, and I think that's a very poignant sort of way of looking a very poignant comment because it's certainly how you know I think it applies very much to here. Now we're standing in front of uh, the gravestone of J.A. Fraser and he's after his the letters that come after his name are GC, MC and Bar British Army Aid Group 29th of October 1943 age 47. Yes indeed as you quite rightly point out I'll just fill out the details a little bit very brave man decorations there, George Cross, which we'll talk about in a moment, um, Military Cross and the bar to the Military Cross. The latter two, of course, were awarded for service or action during the First World War. I can talk a little bit more about that, if you wish, in terms of a little bit of, of his background. Well, he was born in Edinburgh in 1896 as a young man, like many, many, many others, others of his generation. 
in September 1915, not long after the First World War broke out, uh, he was commissioned into the Royal Scots Fusiliers and he served on the Western Front where, as I say, he won the uh, Military Cross, the first one in July 1916 during the Battle of the Somme and Bar, the second Military Cross, in October 1917. Following demobilisation in 1919, he was appointed as what was known in those days as a cadet in the colonial service and he was sent to Hong Kong. He made steady progress in his career, moving up the ranks and serving with various government departments, mainly in the new territories. So he was a civil servant? Or yes, I... right. He, his military background was, was over. Military service was gone. He served in Hong Kong in the uh, colonial government in various departments, mainly in the new territories. And in 1930, uh, he went back to the UK to study law. I think his career took a slightly unusual turning or path here. But he came back to Hong Kong and he served with attorneys generals and... So what, did he study law, what, become a lawyer? Or? Well, presumably yes, but I mean he did come back, stayed with the government, with legal departments, i.e. the Attorney General's and Crown Solicitor's departments, and he became Assistant Attorney General. And this is where, again, it's very unusual, in 1941 he was appointed Defence Secretary, I believe he was the first one here at the time, the first person to fill that post, and again, in April, this was in April 1941, and I think it's pretty obvious that war clouds were gathering, and so the colonial government and the home government of course in the United Kingdom would have made plans for that. He served in the fighting in, in Hong Kong although as I say he was a civil servant but during the Japanese occupation from 1942, early 1942 onwards he was interned in Stanley Camp of which this cemetery of course which was standing in uh, was part. The Japanese believed him to be very heavily involved in resistance movement and I think they got it right. The Japanese were quite right. He was. There is nothing in the resistance that this man didn't know about. There was no activity that he was not involved in, or didn't, at the very least, didn't know about. So he. So this is John Fraser. So he was part of the British Army aid group. Yes, he so was indeed. He was. He was a very senior member of that organisation. The British Army aid group was established by an Australian by the name of Lindsay Ride was a colonel eventually. He was a medical man and he was actually serving with the volunteers as a medical officer. Uh, he went into Shamshapo camp but he very quickly realised, which of course was a military camp, there were just military men in the camp and not civilians, but he very quickly realised that if he was going to be of any use he would be better off out. In other words he'd be better off not just out of the camp but out of Hong Kong possibly working in Free China, as it was called, establishing resistance to the Japanese here in the captured colony. And that's exactly what he did. He went to General Christopher Maltby with his plan to escape. He escaped with two other officers and a Chinese non-commissioned officer who had actually, all, all members of the volunteers, who'd actually... Um, Francis Yip, wasn't that's it? That's it, yeah. Who'd actually worked for Lindsay Ride earlier. And the four of them got out of Shamshapo camp. That alone is a amazing story in itself and they made their way into Free China uh, as it was termed where Lindsay Ride established the uh, British Army Aid Group and there the aim in very general terms was to provide assistance to escapees and there were some both military and civilian from Hong Kong not so many as the occupation period continued because of course people were getting rather weakened by hunger and so on and so forth but in the early days of the occupation men and some women did manage to get out of the camps they also provided other assistance they were able to get information out of the camp to anywhere really where 
people who had relatives in captivity wanted to know what had happened to their loved ones and they were able to get information into the camps, plural. They were also able to assist Americans, American pilots who'd been shot down or who came down, uh, who had been involved in bombing um, the occupied colony from quite early days actually. So they were, they were quite an active organisation and they had a number of men and women um, various nationalities and you can see some of the headstones you'll see British you'll see Chinese you'll see uh, Indian Captain Ansari we can talk about all these people work for the British Army aid group and very actively involved many of course paid with their lives and that's what we're looking at here a number of these headstones uh, are all of men and some women who paid the ultimate price for resistance against the Japanese occupation so today I'm talking with Martin Hayes who is a amateur military history enthusiast here in Hong Kong, does a lot of tours and also um, has provided lots of information for relatives who come to Hong Kong looking for more information about grandparents or parents. And uh, here we're looking at five men today who were posthumously awarded uh, the George Cross during the Japanese military occupation of Hong Kong. So John Fraser, we see here, he dies on the 29th of October 1943. Uh, all of these five men were executed, but at different times. But let's have a look at uh, the stories of the others first before we talk about that. So the grounds here are beautifully kept, actually. You've got a lot of uh, white military graves. You've got longer graves that are also from earlier times. And a few, of course, quite poignantly, that are children. Yeah, I mean, we're standing here today and we've got a couple of gentlemen lower down strimming, I think is the right term, the, uh, the grass, which I know you've expressed a little bit of concern because <laughs> they're a bit noisy. But I think it's great that that's being done. It just shows you the, the, the care that's, and attention that's paid to not just this Commonwealth and War Graves Commission Cemetery, but I think all of the cemeteries, they are meticulously maintained. If you're just looking around, we see the flowers in front of the headstones and, and, and the grass being trimmed. Of course, some of that would be done by descendants, possibly relatives, but others would just be placed here, I'm sure, by the Commonwealth and War Graves Commission. So they've done a very good job and, that, and continue to do a very good job in maintaining this rather attractive spot. So we've been talking about John Fraser. We've now moved up to the grave of Captain Martin Ahmed Ansari. Yeah, I find this particular story, if you like, behind this gentleman fascinating. Captain Ansari was born into a wealthy family in Hyderabad, India, in 1915 or 16. He joined the British Army and was unusual for the time, I believe, and was awarded the King's Commission rather than the Viceroy's Commission. He joined his regiment, the 5th... So what does that mean? Well, that meant that he was actually a member of the... He held the King's Commission, which was considered a little bit of a cut above the Viceroy's Commission. He was posted to the 5th Battalion of the 7th Rajputs in Hong Kong, and his company saw fierce action during the battle in the Devil's Peak area uh, in the New Territories. This was when the Japanese overran the Gin Drinkers Line. The major action in the Gin Drinkers Line in the New Territories which was the major British defensive line, consisted of the Royal Scots uh, on the western side, the two Indian battalions, the Punjabs and the Rajputs, respectively, in the centre, and on the eastern side. This is a defensive line which stretched to about 11 or so miles across the new territories north of Kowloon. Now, the Royal Scots position was attacked, and that fell rather quickly, 
but the decision was made by the brigadier commanding the mainland brigade as it was called together with the general commanding the garrison general Maltby that the whole of the gin drinkers line would be withdrawn and that all the soldiers on that line would be taken away from the mainland and withdrawn to Hong Kong Island and that is exactly what happened now the Rajputs and the Punjabs didn't see much action to begin with on the line but later did as they were withdrawing down through the new territories and the Rajputs put up a very strong resistance in the Devil's Peak area while their colleagues from the Punjabs uh, went through them and made their way over to the island and then the Rajputs followed suit and Ansari was very much in, involved in this in this action all the troops were then on Hong Kong Island by mid-December and on the night of the 18th early hours of the 19th of December the Japanese launched their attack uh, on the island having twice in fact called upon the British to surrender which they refused to do and there was very very fierce fighting on the island almost from the very very beginning and Sari was very much involved in that fighting once he was captured however and uh, obviously the Japanese knew very well who they had in Ansari. They probably would have done their homework and they would have been able to find out quite a bit about his background. They knew he came from an influential family, should we say. He was a captain, he did hold the King's Commission, and they probably thought, hmm, we've got somebody here who can be very useful to us. There was, I believe, talk of prior to the fighting Ansari tended to have somewhat nationalist tendencies. He wasn't perhaps quite as fond of the British as some people would say it's a slightly controversial subject. Why is it controversial? Well, because of course he was a member of the British Army, uh, he held the King's Commission, and yet he was possibly supporting Indian nationalism. The Raj has got to go, sort of thing, you know, independence. But suffice it to say, Ansari was not for turning. The Japanese really wanted him and thought possibly that he would cooperate. They wanted him to turn against the British and because of his influence bring a number of Indian soldiers with him in other words onto the Japanese side but he he wasn't having it he he was not going to do that and he remained loyal to the British uh, he was tortured in Stanley prison not far from where we're standing here of course from May 1942 onwards and despite the best attempts of the Japanese to turn him as I say by torture he, he stayed loyal to the British and uh, he was executed in October 1943 together with John Fraser on St Stephen's Beach not literally you know, a few yards from where we're standing. How was the execution carried out? They were beheaded these men were beheaded there were I believe two Japanese officers who took it in turns and there were a number of other people we've got to remember there were some in the region of 30 or so men and at least one woman all working for the BAAG a very detailed account can be read of somebody who was um, certainly as, as close to an eyewitness as you'll ever find and that is George Wright Newth who was a senior police officer unfortunately passed away now but George Wright Newth wrote a book sometime in the early 90s I think called Prisoner of the Turnip Heads and uh, incidentally Wright News devotes at least one chapter to, to all of this, to the trial, to the execution, and he himself says that he could easily have been implicated by any of these men uh, that have, we've talked about so far, Fraser, possibly Ansari, because he was also involved in resistance, and because of their bravery they didn't name people they could have done, and so these men pay the ultimate price, but others were saved.
Extraordinary. So there would have been around 30 people on that beach that day? Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. As I say, one could go to the... There are records of it. There is eyewitness accounts of... Um, they were taken out by vehicle, though. It's only a short ride, if you will, down to the beach. Some extraordinary bravery shown by these men and, as I say, a few women. It's interesting, isn't it, uh, also, that that period of history, you have this young Indian man, as you say, from a wealthy Indian background, um, who ends up fighting with the British, you know, and the fact that India, of course, is a part of the British Empire at that point, up until 1947. And uh, I just, I, it's a very interesting, I think, where people end up, not only, you know, as a, as a part of, well, not only the British Empire and who actually fought within the British Empire, or the different countries involved, or countries' men involved in fighting for the British military, but also this young man who dies at Stanley. So we're looking at five men today who all are, at least their gravestones are in this cemetery here at Stanley Military Cemetery. And the thing that they tragically have in common is that they were all, five of them, due to their brave actions, given posthumously the British George Cross Medal after they died. And uh, this is uh, Colonel L.A. Newnham. Yes, indeed. Um, Colonel Lancer A. Arthur Newnham, to give him his full name. He has something in common with John Fraser, Colonel John Fraser, and not just the rank. You'll notice that he also has the military cross. Fraser, of course, was awarded the military cross twice. Colonel Newnham once, but that's pretty special. <laughs> he was born into a British Army family in India in August 1889, commissioned into the Middlesex Regiment and sent to France in August 1915, where he participated in some of the bloodiest fighting on the Western Front, including on the Somme and at Arras, and in January 1917, he was awarded the Military Cross. He stayed with the British Army, and by December 1941, he was serving in Hong Kong. Also with the Middlesex? Well, he was what in military terms is referred to as late Middlesex. He was a staff officer by then, so he'd moved on from being a regimental officer. Sure, because he would have been... I mean, he dies at the age of 54. Mm, that's right. So he had ceased being a regimental officer, in other words, serving with the regiment, uh, and uh, he was full colonel by then. He was a staff officer, working pretty close to the general officer commanding the garrison, General Christopher Mulby. After the British surrender in December, Christmas Day, 1941, uh, he was working closely with the British Army A Group agents to arrange escapes from POW camps. His activities were discovered by the Japanese and he was subsequently arrested with two other men, one of whom lies next to him, Flight Lieutenant Gray of uh, the Royal Air Force, and Captain Ford, who is just above us here. And they were tortured in Stanley Prison and executed by firing squad on this occasion in December 1943. So these three deaths, if you will, Although they were all working for the same organisation, were separate to the other two. So we've got Ansari and Fraser and one group, as it were, and then these three in the second group. But they were all, the bottom line is, they were all working for the British Army A Group, all working for resistance against the Japanese during the occupation 41 to 45. So Martin Hayes and I are at Stanley Military Cemetery where we're looking at five men who were awarded the George Cross Medal posthumously, so after their deaths in the Second World War, and all five were executed, two in October and three in December 1943. Martin, we're very close to where, or this would have also been part of where, where all these graves now are, would have been part of the civilian internment camp. But of course, these men 
were military. So where were they interned before they came here to Stanley Prison? Fraser, for example, would have been here in the in Stanley civilian camp, as you uh, quite rightly... Oh, because he's a civil servant. Yes, that's then, right. Yes. Um, so, so, so Fraser was a civil servant, had been military, but by this time was a civil servant, of course. But the men, not just these men, but all sorts of people were taken from various places uh, to Stanley Prison, where they would be interrogated and tortured. So that is the, the Stanley connection, and in the case of two of them, executed just very close to here. Well, the British military, and I include the RAF in this, love their nicknames, and this gentleman, Flight Lieutenant Hector Bertram Gray, had the nickname Dolly Gray. And he is, as you can see, was a member of the Royal Air Force, holder of the George Cross. He was born in Gillingham in Kent in June 1911. Obviously far too young for First World War service, but he enlisted in the Royal Air Force as an apprentice aircraftsman, and by November 1938 had reached the rank of sergeant, although he was a pilot. And at that time he was serving with the what was called the Long Range Development Flight. And in that year, 1938, he was a member of the crew uh, who flew an RAF bomber all the way from from non-stop from Egypt to Darwin, Australia. And that at the time was a world distance record. And as you can see, Dolly Gray has got the letters AFM after his name, Air Force Medal, an award for non-combat, basically. And so he has the letters AFM after his name. He was commissioned and was serving in Hong Kong at the time of the outbreak of the Pacific War. I don't have much information of what he was actually doing during the fighting, but obviously upon the British surrender, uh, he was taken prisoner. And he was working closely with other BAAG agents. In his case, uh, smuggling much-needed medicine into the camps. So, as I mentioned earlier, the BAAG had a, were involved in a wide range of activities, and I just touched on a few of them here today. Uh, what I haven't mentioned is one of the activities that they were involved in uh, were radios. Uh, radios were a capital offence. Possession of a radio, listening to a radio, was a capital offence as far as the Japanese were concerned, and yet it was something which they, they desperately wanted. They needed this information. They needed to be able to get information out and certainly to receive information and uh, there was any number of examples and stories and diaries and so on and so forth recount use of radios, manufacture of radios, the hiding of radios in the camps. Dolly Gray, as I say, his area of activity was very much involved in medicine. There were medical doctors in the camp, there were nurses, there were dentists, but I'm afraid the Japanese were not terribly helpful in many ways in terms of what they were allowing in, in terms of medical supplies. And so that was one of the things that the BAAG were involved in, smuggling medicine into the camp. And um, he was discovered in this activity and uh, he was arrested and tortured again in Stanley Prison like others. And he was executed in December 1943. Gray and Captain Ford, who we'll talk about in a minute, and uh, Colonel Newnham, they were all executed at Big Wave Bay. They were shot at Big Wave Bay, and the other two that we've talked about were actually executed at St Stephen's Beach. So the Japanese obviously tended to use different locations in the captured colony for executions which they carried out. I don't know whether you can hear on here, but there's actually a little bit of bird sound now um, here. So quite a peaceful place, occasional car going by here at Stanley Military Cemetery. Yeah, we're looking now, Anne-Marie, at the last of our five George Cross holders. Um, this is Captain Douglas Ford. Uh, he was born in Gala Shields, Scotland, in September 1918. 
Upon the outbreak of war in September 39, he was studying accountancy at Edinburgh University, probably destined for a career in that profession. Uh, but like many, many others of his generation, uh, he discontinued his studies to join up and he was commissioned into the 2nd Battalion, the Royal Scots, and was sent to Hong Kong. The Royal Scots, of course, being one of the three battalions who were posted to the Gin Drinkers Line, the major defensive line in the New Territories. And he was serving with his brother, uh, who was also a captain in the same battalion. He so was, his, his brother was where, though? Did he come to Hong Kong? Oh, yes, his brother was serving here in oh. Hong Kong many, many years ago. I, I, met his, I met his brother and came back. Oh, he survived? Yes, he did. The brother survived. I met him when uh, a chap by the name of Colonel Oliver Lindsay um, conducted a battlefield tour, probably, I would say, in the early to mid-80s. And um, Captain Ford was, was in that uh, group of some of the Royal Scots who came, came back to Hong Kong. Douglas Ford was taken prisoner in Hong Kong and he was in Sham Shapo camp where the majority of the military men were imprisoned. Some of the Indian soldiers were kept separate but nearby uh, but the majority of the, the British military men were in Sham Shapo camp, long gone of course. He became involved with the British Army A group and he was actively planning a mass breakout of prisoners of war from Sham Shapo camp when the Japanese learned of his activities. He was arrested and again, like others we've looked at, was brought to Stanley Prison where he was tortured and he was executed at the same time as Newnham and Gray by firing squad, Big Wave Bay on the 18th of December, 1943. It's interesting actually looking at a military grave like this. I don't come from a military family, so, um, so you know, it's often when I'm researching <coughs> this kind of history, it's, it's uh, a little bit new to me, the military side of things, but you've got at the top... The regimental crest. Yeah, so that's the Royal Scots. Um, then you've got, you know, the fact about him, his name, yes, his age, indeed. his regiment. And, uh, and then at the bottom, you've also got the, the George Cross, and, and then it says, he won life for friends, this ground for Scotland, and glory for God. So you're saying actually that the family sometimes with the with the graves can choose, were able to choose their own inscriptions? Yes, absolutely. These are all Commonwealth and War Graves Commission graves. They all follow a similar pattern which you've described, uh, generally made of Portland stone, um, although there's nothing to stop a family, uh, as I understand, um, perhaps having marble if you're so, so inclined. But generally they're made of Portland stone, and as you have quite accurately described, regimental crest, name, rank, serial number, the unit, and again, often a biblical quote, sometimes something a family just want to have, and maybe possibly even something from Shakespeare I've seen from time to time. So I think it would obviously very much depend on the Commonwealth and War Graves Commission. If you want to have something which they're happy with, then yes. So the brother, what do you know about him then, uh, that he came on that tour, uh, but he obviously made it through? Well, he did. Um, I remember sitting next to him on a bus, we were picked up um, at Chun Wan, of all places, um, having chugged out on a, on a Royal Navy boat of some description. And uh, we went ashore and we were met by some army buses. This was an, uh, a tour, I, I was a bit of an interloper really. It was a tour, battlefield tour is the proper terminology, organised by a gentleman by the name of Colonel Oliver Lindsay, who's sadly no longer with us. Um, and it was probably the last of the sort of staff college type battlefield tours that was formally arranged. We had a, a few Royal Scots. We certainly had, uh, by then, Colonel Hewitt, 
of the Middlesex. He'd been a captain, he was the adjutant of the Middlesex, um, who at that time was living in Australia. And we had quite a number of Canadians, and they all came back, and it was a two-day official battlefield tour. No doubt people stayed on longer than that. And we basically started up in the New Territories. We started at the Shingmoon Redoubt and made our way down to the island, uh, where the battle was covered in quite a lot of detail. Sadly, of course, um, with the passage of time, no doubt the majority, if not all, of the participants are no longer with us. Now, Hewitt, he did some sort of escape, yes. didn't he? Yes, uh, Colonel Hewitt did. He was a captain. Yes, Captain Hewitt, as he was then, um, did manage to escape, and he, he got out with some other officers. So there were escapes from the camp, and camps generally. Even some women escaped. We've got uh, examples of that. And what I find very interesting is that um, very often these people wrote their accounts. They've written their, you could say a diary, but it's become a book uh, of their escape, and some, some fascinating accounts. My thanks to military history enthusiast Martin Hayes talking there on the five men whose graves are at Stanley Military Cemetery who were all posthumously recipients of the George Cross Medal. If you'd like to join Martin Hayes on a battlefield tour, Martin conducts walks of Hong Kong's Second World War battlefield sites including Wong Lai Chung, Shingmun, Mount Davis and Devil's Peak. He can be contacted through local tour company Walk Hong Kong at www.walkhongkong.com. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage. <laughs>